I want to talk about a controversial subject today, about tra- unilateral trade liberalization. Uh, some people would say that it's akin to unilateral disarmament, uh, that, that we would lose all of our capacity to encourage our trade partners to, to liberalize themselves if we had nothing to negotiate away. Uh, others would say it's a nice theory, kind of pie in the sky, but politically impossible. I would agree that it's a political long shot, uh, but we have to plant the seed now, I think. Other countries have done it in the past uh, with, with great success, great economic stories that followed. Uh, while there's still a glimmer of hope uh, that, the, uh, that, the, that the Doha round might conclude successfully, that trade negotiators might uh, achieve a major breakthrough, uh, I rather doubt that's going to happen. Uh, certainly it will not happen in a, in a timely enough fashion. There's a lot of finger pointing as to who is to blame for the, for the stasis in the, in the, in the round. And there's certainly plenty of blame to go around. Uh, if you want to call it blame, I think the bottom line is that there's just not enough interest across enough countries in, in real trade liberalization that results in new bindings and new requirements. Uh, countries w- are willing to liberalize, but to varying degrees and with varying flexibilities. It's not a secret that countries that are, that are more open to trade grow faster than those, those that are relatively closed. And that's not an abstract Uh, economic theorem in search of adherence. Plenty of economists of all political persuasions would agree to that. Um, Will Martin would probably uh, show you some of those results uh, here today. Um, Most countries recognize that commercial engagement with the rest of the world is an economic imperative. I mean, just look at the trends. In in 1947, when the GATT was founded, there were 23 original members. Uh, Today, there are 149 members in the WTO. in 1995, there were about 70 bilateral and regional trade agreements in the world. Today, there are in excess of 225. And in the nearly 60 years since the GATT, uh, rich countries have dropped their tariffs from about 40% to about 4% on average, and developing countries have, have followed a similar trajectory. So most countries, I think, appreciate the need to, to engage uh, internationally. There's just a very vast disparity of ambition uh, at this point. Um, I, I think many governments don't want to relinquish the capacity to reverse course if they feel that the political pressure has become uh, too potent uh, to ignore. So how do we deal with this disparity of ambition? Uh, It's a major problem that besets this whole concept of multilateral reciprocity, which is the premise of the Doha round itself. Uh, When we're dealing in a construct of a single undertaking where liberalization in agriculture is predicated on liberalization in in, in industrial tariffs, which is uh, based on services liberalization, which has a lot to do with how far countries are willing to go with rules and anti-dumping. There's no escaping an outcome that uh, reflects the lowest common denominator of ambition. Um, So why should countries who are ambitious about liberalization accept this lowest common denominator approach? Uh, Why should countries who are not particularly ambitious, who are shying away from liberalization, uh, be be compelled uh, to open up their markets? Um, I think the bottom line is we don't need negotiations to liberalize trade. Uh, We don't need the consent of other countries uh, to remove our own trade distortions and to energize the U.S. economy. Trade barriers, uh, subsidies, those things are those are foremost matters of domestic budgetary and economic concern. Uh, domestic reform also doesn't require uh, permission from our from our trade partners. Uh, all by itself, the U.S. Congress uh, can show its support for American business. 
uh, for consumers, for taxpayers, by pursuing a policy of unilateral trade liberalization. Tariffs and quotas uh, and, and other protection and distortions are not assets to be relinquished only in exchange for better access abroad. They are not assets at all, in fact. In fact, they are liabilities. Uh, they raise the cost of production for U.S. producers. They raise the cost of living for uh, U.S. consumers. And they're, and they're especially burdensome for lower-income Americans. So the most compelling case, in my view, for dismantling our protectionist programs uh, is not that there are concessions that will buy U.S. exporters access abroad. It's because... Uh, it's, it's, it's good for the U.S. economy, period. Uh, in other words, we don't really need a Doha round to achieve, uh, to achieve the objectives, the U.S. objectives of the Doha round. Unilateral trade liberalization will bring better opportunities for U.S. business, uh, greater choice and lower prices for consumers, and greater opportunity for the developing world uh, to partake in the benefits of the global economy. Removing barriers unilaterally uh, could also go a long way, and this is very important, go a long way toward advancing uh, U.S. foreign policy objectives uh, by breaking the links both real and perceived <coughs> between U.S. trade policies and economic hardship in developing countries. Uh, unconditional access to the U.S. market could foster goodwill toward the United States at a time when antipathy toward U.S. policies uh, is ascendant. Now, I'm not saying that reciprocity-based agreements have no place. They certainly have played a major role in the story of trade liberalization for the past 60 years. Uh, multilateral or bilateral reciprocity uh, can produce widespread benefits. Uh, agreements that dismantle, dismantle more barriers in more countries uh, can be more liberalizing than the commitment of just one country uh, to engage in unilateral reform. So, you know, the fewer obstacles there are <coughs> uh, to the free flow of goods and services in, in the world, uh, the greater p the potential for economic growth. So agreements can, fa can facilitate also, they can also facilitate domestic reform uh, that's going on in other countries. It can lock countries into commitments that become difficult to reverse. In fact, the story behind NAFTA uh, is largely follows this model. The U.S. and Canada had a bilateral agreement. Mexico realized it was in their interest to engage in all sorts of domestic reforms. The Salinas government recognized that these reforms could be subject to backsliding, and it was Mexico that came to the United States and said, let us join this North American agreement. Uh, and that was the primary motivation. Uh, Mexico didn't have to make many more reforms than they already had when they joined the NAFTA. Um, they can also help prevent backsliding. Uh, U.S. commitments, WTO commitments, for example, might be the most compelling reason or the final reason uh, that, or the prevailing argument against protectionist legislation, like the Schumer-Graham bill, which you're probably familiar with, the 27.5% tariff, against Chinese imports unless and until China revalues its currency uh, to a degree deemed sufficient by the Congress. That would violate our commitments, clearly, and I think that that's one of the reasons that that legislation will not pass. Um, also, international negotiations carry a certain gravitas that could be tapped by reform-minded uh, constituencies to overcome... Re uh, resistance to reform by entrenched uh, powerful interests, prospects for reform that are in a country's best interest uh, but are opposed by these uh, powerful domestic constituencies can improve when there's external pressure uh, to be brought to bear. But there's also problems with reciprocity, and I think that we have problems in the Doha round uh, just because of the nature of, of, of the way negotiations are, are, are undertook. First, reciprocity reinforces the fallacy that import barriers are assets. Uh, to be dispensed with only in exchange for uh, similar measures abroad. 
that misperception can and does retard uh, the liberalization process uh, in countries that are already inclined toward liberalization. Uh, there's been all sorts of unilateral liberalization going on in the world, and once the Doha round started, quite a lot of it has stopped uh, while countries wait to see uh, whether they can get anything in exchange for that. Um, although agreements might help to consolidate and buffer domestic reform uh, from, from subsequent backsliding, um, negotiations can also cause countries to recoil from making commitments, and I think that's what's happening in, in, the, in the Doha round. Um, countries are more willing to liberalize when they can do it on their own terms, uh, knowing that they, when push comes to shove, they can reverse course. Um, trade negotiations, tr- negotiations also feature an asymmetry of negotiating power uh, between and among the participants. Uh, wh- while there are important benefits to, being, to having more leverage, uh, there are also responsibilities and burdens. I think as the world's largest economy, the United States has a lot of negotiating leverage, but its positions are often perceived uh, or can be distorted to be perceived as heavy-handed. We've heard from the developing countries and the NGOs that purport to represent their interests throughout the Doha negotiations, uh, accusations of U.S. arm-twisting and bullying. Many have alleged that the negotiating process is the exclusive domain of a few rich countries and that proposals are presented on a take-it-or-leave-it basis. Uh, and and in no way reflect the concerns of the smaller countries. So this asymmetry requires, in perception, uh, if if, if not in reality, that the U.S. assume a greater share of the responsibility for the consequences of any agreement. So if a trade agreement fails to deliver the advertised benefits expeditiously uh, to the smaller, poorer countries, even if that failure may be attributable to, to purely domestic policy errors unrelated to the agreement, then the agreement, and by extension, the United States bears some of the blame. And whether that's a fair conclusion is irrelevant. Uh, the point is that by insisting on reciprocity, uh, the United States exposes itself from to, to, to the adverse consequences of any fallout from short-term adjustment costs that are likely to be incurred in the developing countries. And that, to me, can seriously undermine our foreign policy and security objectives. Much, much research on the benefits of trade liberalization affirms the conclusion of a 2001 IMF paper which states... Although there are benefits from improved access to other countries' markets, countries benefit most from liberalizing their own markets. Uh, I cite several studies in the paper that's out there called Leading the Way, uh, and I believe Will has his own figures to share with you, so I won't go into all of the, all of the various sources, but the bottom line is that import competition boosts productivity and living standards uh, by inspiring a shift in resources away from activities in which Americans are less productive toward activities in which we are relatively more productive. Uh, it also extends family budgets by keeping prices in check. Uh, it increases quality and choice. It raises average productivity, and it reduces the cost of production for U.S. manufacturers. This year's uh, economic report of the president contains data comparing trends in overall consumer prices, uh, including prices of non-traded goods and services, to the trend in import prices. And there's a staggering difference. Uh, but just to give you an idea... Uh, real prices for highly traded goods fell considerably between 1997 and 2004. Audio equipment declined by 26%, TV sets by 51%, toys 31%, clothing 9%. Uh, in contrast, real prices for largely non-traded products like milk increased 28%, for butter 23%, ice cream 18%, peanut butter 9%, and sugar 9%. So. In addition to their price, uh, their suppressing effects on prices, uh, imports allow consumers to benefit from a wider variety and better quality of products and services. Uh, Americans also benefit as producers 
uh, investors and workers when access to imports is improved. U.S. producers need uh, imported raw materials and components to lower their own costs of production. Uh, and competition for the fi- their final goods <coughs> inspires greater efficiencies, exposes these firms to international best practices, and ultimately helps to raise productivity. Uh, when productivity rises, wages and profits tend to follow suit, benefiting workers and investors. Uh, through all these channels, imports help U.S. industries remain competitive at home and abroad and help the economy to grow and living standards to rise. And the benefit of better access of imports for U.S. producers um, to, uh, to, to raw materials translates into better far- market access abroad. Uh, trade liberalization at home reduces costs in the supply chain to render businesses more competitive here and abroad. And when foreigners have better access to the U.S. market, uh, they have the opportunity to earn more dollars. So the, the income effect of their sales in the U.S., uh, has a measurable impact on their demand for, for U.S. products. As imports have increased year after year over the past several years, so have exports. Last year, more than $900 billion uh, of U.S. production was exported. So in my paper, there are some charts that reflect uh, a correlation between import growth and export growth. And we, and we tend to export more to countries from whom we import more, as, as one would expect. So... You might say, as members of Congress say, Dan, sounds like a, sounds like a neat idea, uh, but the U.S. market is already pretty open. What is there to liberalize? Well, on average, we're pretty open. Our average tariff, the average applied tariff in the United States in 2005 was 1.4%. It is relatively low, and about 70% of all U.S. imports entered the market duty-free uh, that year. But those averages obscure certain facts, as averages <laughs> tend to do. Uh, that 1.4% average reflects the fact that, uh, that, that products with low or no duties tend to be imported more uh, than products with ho- subject to higher duties, and that skews the average lower. The average nominal tariff, which is just a straight average uh, of all the product-specific tariff lines, is closer to 4.9%, which reflects a range of individual tariffs of 0 to 350%. Many of the products subject to above-average tariffs are necessities, like clothing and footwear and food. Um, Products in Chapters 61 and 62 of the Harmonized Tariff Schedule, uh, which is how we uh, keep track of our imports and how we assign duties, um, which those those chapters cover imports of clothing, apparel and clothing accessories. They are the most heavily taxed. The average for those chapters is 11.5% duty, uh, which is a rate eight times higher than the overall average. And, you know, while imports of of those products, clothing, accounted for only 4.3%, of all of our import value in 2005, the duties collected on those products accounted for 35% of all the duties collected by the Customs Service. You know, lobbyists for the U.S. textile industry and their representatives here in Congress like to claim that our trade agreements and our preference programs provide duty-free access to the world's poorest countries. Um, but the fact is that most, most uh, clothing uh, that comes in the United States is taxed and is taxed fairly heavily, and that's a pretty strong indictment Uh, against the rigid rules of origins that are in the fine print of many of these agreements and preference programs. Um, Table 1 in my paper uh, shows other products that are subject to abnormally high tariff peaks. The cost of these duties are borne most significantly by by lower-income Americans because these are necessities. There's not a whole lot of elasticity to demand for them. Um, So lower-income families devote a higher proportion of their budget to these products. 
And these products are also the same products that are most likely to be produced and exported by developing countries. Uh, it's of no relevance to countries like Macau or Cambodia or Bangladesh or Sri Lanka, Pakistan or Vietnam that the average applied tariff in the United States is 1.4%. What matters to them is that their exports are subject to duties between 6 and 12 times higher than that average. What matters to them is that although their exports um, comprise a small fraction of the total imports in the United States, their share of U.S. duties collected is substantial. Uh, table 2 in the paper out there, in my paper, uh, provides a breakout by country of, of, of duties collected, duties, average duties assigned. But it's pretty, it's, pretty, it's, it's pretty stunning. You'll see there that the average duty applied to OECD countries is 0.8%. That's below our average 1.4. And nearly three-quarters of rich country imports come in duty-free. But Macau's duty is, is almost 17%, and only 2.7% of imports from, from, from Macau come in duty-free. Cambodia has a similar picture, and all those other developing countries I mentioned do as well. So the U.S. tariff system is regressive. Uh, Lower-income Americans and workers in poor countries bear the biggest brunt uh, of its bite. But U.S. protectionism goes well beyond tariff peaks to include import quotas, anti-dumping measures, anti-subsidy measures, government subsidies, rules of origin, buy American provisions, and more. And all of these forms of protectionism are costly and unfair. Um, in the paper, I go into greater detail about how these subsidy programs and how uh, our anti-dumping remedies drive up the costs of everyday products for consumers and industrial inputs. I won't go into those right now. But the U.S. does not need recipro reciprocal agreements to remedy these problems. Uh, in fact, reciprocal agreements, in my view, might, might prove too costly in terms of our foreign policy credibility. Um, there, are now about 100, there are now 149 members in the WTO at disparate levels of economic development uh, with different negotiating priorities uh, and asymmetric negotiating resources, attempting presumably to reach consensus on a diversity of issues in an increasingly contentious environment. Um, even if an agreement were reached, uh, it would likely tax U.S. Credib credibility further. As I alluded to before, naysayers would inevitably say that the U.S. subjected them to arm twisting or blackmailing. And I don't think that the U.S. should subject itself to those assertions uh, because we will therefore be blamed when necessary adjustment costs uh, are, are incurred. I think if the U.S. were to take the lead uh, and uh, and remove its remaining trade barriers without demands of others, not only would we reap the economic benefits of openness, uh, but others might be inclined to follow suit. Uh, it could trigger a reciprocal response, what Professor Jagdish Bhagwati calls sequential reciprocity. Other countries may be inspired to emulate U.S. policies because we've demonstrated them to be successful uh, and simply because many of these countries will recognize that it's in their interest to do so. In this world of you know, globally integrated supply chains, just-in-time supply chains, uh, relentless competition uh, among developing countries for markets and for investment. I don't think there's much of a way for these countries to compete uh, unless they're as open and trans as transparent as possible. So I think it is in their interest to open, and I think that they will. Um, in fact, they have been doing, according to a World Bank study, between 1983 and 2003, developing countries reduced their weighted average tariffs by 21 percentage points and unilateral reforms account for two-thirds of that. The other one-third was because of agreements, uh, bilateral uh, regional agreements. So the countries are, these countries recognize that. So I know that even though you're all convinced of the merits of uh, selling unilateral liberalization, 
uh, of unilateral liberalization. You all know that selling it to Congress is going to be uh, pretty difficult. I, I would have to agree with you. Um, vested interests, there, there are vested interests that have an entrenched way of thinking about trade, and it will take time to overcome. But I think the effort can begin now by attempting to, to change the rhetoric. We need to stop demonizing imports. You know, imports have tripled over the last 25 years, while the number of net new jobs created in the United States increased by 32 million. Uh, and as imports rose, so did, so did GDP. Last year, we had a record number of imports, which occurred alongside the creation of 2 million net new jobs, a reduction of, in the unemployment rate at, by the end of the year to 4.7%, uh, and a 3.5% increase in GDP. Uh, imports are not uh, uh, draining our economy in any way. Likewise, I think the USTR's office, when, we, when, it, when it talks about trade, needs to stop exclusively touting the export market benefits of an agreement and downplaying the fact that foreigners will have better access to our markets. We need to, they need to talk in terms of the benefits of those imports. Former USTR Robert Zellick tried that uh, a couple of years ago when he introduced this zero-for-zero tariff policy. He said it would turn every house, uh, every store in America into a duty-free shop. And he talked about the benefits to consumers, and I think policymakers need to start talking about that in order for us to get a better understanding of how trade affects our lives in in a very positive way. I'm going to stop there and turn the podium back over to Brandon. Thanks very much for your attention. Okay, our our next speaker is going to be uh, Mr. William Martin. He is the uh, lead economist at the Development Research Group of the World Bank. He specializes in analysis of trade policy reforms in developing countries. Uh, You'll probably note from his accent that he is, uh, in fact, Australian. Uh, And in Australia, uh, I think it's important to note that unilateral liberalization has been uh, the dominant form of trade liberalization in that country. He has actually been at the World Bank now for 15 years. Prior to that, he was at Australian National University. Um, And I think his comments draw heavily from his recent book, which is uh, Agricultural Trade Reform and the Doha Development Agenda, if you really want to get into uh, the nitty-gritty of of trade policy. uh, This book is available, I believe, on uh, Amazon.com. With that, I will go ahead and turn things over to Will. Thanks very much, Brendan. It's a great pleasure to to be here today. Um, And I'd like to cover three basic questions in my presentation. The first, look at some of the costs of current protection and subsidies worldwide and the potential benefits of reform if countries went ahead with complete liberalisation. Then second, unfortunately, the Doha Agenda is unlikely, or, or even unilateral reforms in the in near horizon, unlikely to bring us completely to free trade. But how, how far in that sort of direction might, might, might some sort of realistic policy scenarios go? And thirdly, to look at the issue of the potential role of unilateral reform. Now, what, to do this analysis, what we did was to use a very standard computable general equilibrium model, the linkage model maintained by Dominique van der Mensbrugger at the World Bank, and to undertake an analysis of global liberalisation from a situation where um, protection was at levels in 2001, the observed levels of applied rates of protection in 2001, but also 
the commitments that have been agreed, and most important of that, uh, China's accession to WTO, a huge liberalization. In an earlier book, we estimated that the benefits to the world were about $75 billion per year of China's reforms, China's liberalization under its accession. That's a huge reform that brought down barriers in that large and growing market a great deal. As well as that, a lot of liberalization in developing countries, agriculture, was still commit part of commitments under the Uruguay round, will be lowering barriers. And then a number of countries, 10 countries, joined the European Union. They agreed to lower most of their barriers, but in fact to raise some agricultural barriers. And we took that into account in our analysis um, of the baseline. Now, when we do that, what we estimated was that the gains from global trade reform were something in the order of $287 billion, just a little bit, a little bit below $300 billion per year. Now, that's, not, that's a very, very conservative estimate of the benefits. It doesn't take into account any of the dynamic gains or productivity gains to which Dan alluded, um, but it's the thing that we can relatively easily measure. Now, as, a, as a percent of GDP... The cost of current protection to developing countries is about a third higher than the cost to the high-income countries. We often hear the reverse. There's a suggestion um, that protection is more costly in the, in the industrial countries. But in fact, in developing countries, rates of protection are still somewhat higher than in the industrial countries, and hence the cost of protection is somewhat, is somewhat higher. The potential gains from liberalisation... Um, are, of course, also higher. And the benefits to sub-Saharan Africa are about twice as large as the benefits to other groups. That's because barriers in sub-Saharan African countries and between sub-Saharan African countries, unfortunately, are relatively high. So there's $287 billion, the potential gain from global trade liberalisation. Now, within that, the United States is a very interesting case. As Dan mentioned... Um, the rate of protection on average is very low. The average MFN tariff weighted average, 2.8%. That's the most favoured nation, the normal trade relations rate. Um, but as Dan also mentioned, a lot of imports come into the United States under preferential arrangements, especially the imports, the huge imports from Canada and Mexico uh, under NAFTA. The coefficient of variation, uh, that statistical measure I'm sure you're all familiar with from, uh, <coughs> from college, is four times the tariff. This is staggeringly high. It's about four times as high as in countries like Brazil where the tariffs are higher but not nearly uh, as variable. And that really, really raises the cost. A simple rule of thumb drawing on work by Jim Anderson, Peter Neary, is that a variable tariff like that is going to be about seven times as costly as a Chile-style tariff that's uniform across all products. And the US has substantial protection to agriculture as well. The OECD produced a support estimate, $43 billion in 2005. Now, the US, the average rate of protection, the producer subsidy uh, support estimate, is actually 16% is lower than the average for the OECD, but simply because the US is such a large producer and because the rates are higher than many other countries, um, has a very large amount of support to agriculture. When we look at the global economy, I think if you're, if you're looking at liberalisation, what's the potential? It's very interesting to look at the 
um, where should you focus resources, it's very interesting to look and see where the potential is for gains from reform. Um, and if you, if you do that, and what we've done here is to divide it up, how much of the gains would come from reforms in agriculture uh, and food, how much from reforms in textiles and clothing, which are the very highly protected areas in the US and other industrial countries typically have very high rates of tariff protection on these products in part because of exceptions made in the Kennedy and Tokyo rounds, in earlier rounds of trade negotiations. And then look at other merchandise trade. Well, you see down the bottom right-hand corner there, and we also consider whether the liberalisation is done by high-income countries or by developing countries. And we see in the bottom right corner the $287 billion, it's 100% of the total. If you consider, do the gains come from agriculture or non-agricultural liberalisation, what you see is we estimate about 63% of the total benefits from reform come from agricultural trade liberalisation. This is surprising, surprise to many people, and not a particularly well-appreciated uh, observation in certain uh, regions like uh, Europe, um, because... It suggests a focus on liberalising agriculture is where the, the predominant, the majority of the gains would come from. Um, why is it? Well, rates of protection in agriculture are high and highly variable across commodities and across countries, much more so than they are in non-agriculture. So even though it's a small sector in trade, less than 10% of world trade, because of these high rates of protection and highly variable rates of protection, the majority of the benefits from trade reform come from... Um, then textiles and clothing, disproportionately large share of the remainder of the benefits, almost 14% out of uh, the, the remaining 36%, uh, come from textiles and clothing because of the higher rates of tariff uh, in those, 23% from merchandise trade. In terms of the global gains, about 55% come from liberalisation in high-income countries because that's where protection, where rather the, while the protection rates are low, that's where um, the overwhelming majority of GDP is generated uh, and where you have these highly variable rates uh, of protection. But still, 45% of the global costs of protection come from, or benefits from liberalisation come from developing countries. When we look at developing countries, we see a very similar thing. Agricultural reform provides about 63% of the benefits to developing countries from total reform. Um, textiles and clothing are more important, not surprisingly. These are hugely important exports from developing countries, labour-intensive products. Um, about 50%, if we go down the right-hand side, about 50% of the total gains to developing countries come from their own reform and 50% from the reforms uh, in the high-income countries. So that suggests that even for developing countries, liberalisation of agriculture, hugely important, and own liberalisation is hugely important. Now, within agriculture, uh, just as we have two sets of negotiations at the WTO on, on merchandise trade, agriculture and non-agricultural market access, um, within agriculture there are separate discussions on the, what's called the three pillars, agricultural market access which is largely tariff barriers, domestic support, the subsidies paid by governments to their farmers, um, and agricultural export subsidies. 
Now, a lot of discussion suggests that these are equally important. But if you look at the, at the world or for the high-income countries, what you see is that market access is overwhelmingly the most important. Again, that's because of the huge variability in rates of protection. It's because most of the protection is actually provided, support is provided by um, market access barriers, by tariffs rather than by, by, than by subsidies. Uh, subsidies are non-trivial in their importance. Agricultural export subsidies, well, they're very small nowadays, really. It's only Europe who's a major user, a user uh, of those. When you look at impacts on developing countries, market access is even more important. Um, the export subsidies paid by industrial countries are a subsidy paid um, on products which are exported to developing countries. So it's as though taking those away is actually has a negative impact on welfare in developing countries. Which products matter in all of this? Well, rice is one of the most important, sugar, meats. All of these very high rates of protection, highly variable rates of protection. Rice has tariff rates of a thousand odd percent um, in Japan and in Korea. It wasn't always this way, but it is this way now. Those are hugely costly. So liberalization of rice um, would have enormous benefits as well as creating huge opportunities for people in developing countries to get access to those markets and people, of course, uh, in the United States, another efficient producer of rice. Um, sugar, very highly protected, very, very costly. The world price of sugar is hugely depressed. Sugar and dairy products um, hugely depressed by the current structure of protection. Much of the protection is justified because the prices are low. The prices are low because of the protection. Um, it, it's, a, it's a vicious circle. Now, that's just about broad overall liberalization. As I mentioned, it's not likely that we will see that. Um, not everyone has got the message just yet how important liberalization is, uh, the way and, and the fact that most, liberal, most agricultural policy measures are not put there to maximize social welfare, but rather to concentrate to further the interests of rather specialized interest groups that happen to be better organized than the rest. So in the uh, current negotiations in the WTO, what we're seeing is discussions of partial but potentially quite large liberalizations <coughs> where we're seeing discussions of things like 75% tiered cuts, uh, that is, cuts that are highest uh, on the highest tariff rates. The United States is pressing for 90% cuts. Uh, the G20 proposal, 75%. There's discussion of things called sensitive products, products that will be excluded from liberalization. This is a mistake that was made uh, in the earlier negotiations at the GATT and which have left us with these very high tariffs uh, on textiles and clothing that greatly disadvantage developing countries and damage the economies of the countries that use them. There's discussion of tariff caps. Um, there's discussion of special and differential treatment, which means smaller cuts uh, in developing countries. Um, and that, of course, reduces the benefits to developing countries largely. Um, we we analyse a 75% tiered cut to domestic agricultural subsidy ceilings. Um, that's important, particularly in the United States, because um, the subsidy part of domestic support is more important in the United States than elsewhere. Um, agricultural export subsidies, there's agreement to abolish those from 2013. Um, we look at a 50% cut in non-agricultural tariffs. In fact, the negotiations are potentially going further than that. Um, there are proposals for a 20% ceiling 
um, on non-agricultural tariffs, which is really quite a striking uh, outcome if something like that uh, could be achieved. I think it took the industrial countries under the GATT seven rounds of negotiations to get to a ceiling where tariffs would all be, a situation where tariffs would all be brought below 17%. Um, basically, if we get the sort of 2020-20 proposal that's being discussed uh, or being advocated uh, by Mr. M Mr. Lamy, we'd be looking at a situation with a ceiling tariff of 20% in developing countries. We don't take into account liberalization of services trade. This is a huge omission. Services are a large and growing part of trade. They're hugely important for the United States, both in production uh, and in trade, and the benefits can be very large. It's just very hard for us to adequately capture them at this point. One thing that's really important to bear in mind when you look at realistic situations, the negotiations in the WTO are not based on the tariffs that countries apply today, on the protection that countries apply today. They're based on what's called schedules of concessions, tariff bindings that countries have made, commitments that they've made in the past that they will not take their tariffs above that level. That has a very, very important implication for unilateral liberalisation. It has very important implications for um, the effect of, of an agreement. The problem is, the problem first, the bound tariffs average about 27% in agriculture, the applied rates in industrial countries only 14. Why so much lower? Well, it's largely due to preferences, regional preferences uh, and the unilateral preferences given to some developing countries. What that means, of course, is that a cut in bindings at the WTO has a smaller impact on the applied rates than it otherwise would. And this is a particular issue in developing countries where the bound rate's 48 and the average applied rate only 20. Um, in the least developed countries, the bound 78 on average and the applied rate 13. Makes it very hard to bring barriers down. But there's a good flip side to this for unilateral liberalisation. If you bring your barriers down, then the negotiations are still about the bound rates. So if you bring your applied rates down and the negotiations are still on the bound rates, in a sense you get full credit for having brought your applied rates down. Any political pain, and usually this is much less than people suggest, um, is associated with the liberalisation before and not with the subsequent liberalisation uh, to, to bind tariff and lower bound rates in the WTO. So how do, how do our proposals that we analyse, not proposals, the, the, uh, the book scenarios rather, how do they line up with current proposals? Well, as I mentioned, the US is proposing 90% cuts in the highest agricultural tariffs, sensitive products with smaller cuts of 1% of tariff lines, that's, that's rather small, um, and cuts uh, in the order of 83% uh, in what's called the aggregate measure of support, a measure of subsidies. The EU is proposing much less uh, on the market access on the tariffs and many more sensitive products that wouldn't have to make big reductions. Um, and uh, the same cuts as the US is proposing uh, in uh, AMS, the two numbers there, one is for the highest, that is for the EU, and the highest cut uh, and in the United States, 60%. So 70% in the, in the EU, uh, 60 in the United States, whereas the, the US wants 83 in Europe and 60 in the United States. The G20 
advocating something in between, 75% cuts in the highest tariffs um, and 80% cuts in Europe in subsidies. And so what we've done in the book, we've analysed 75%, somewhere in between. We've analysed sensitive products between 0 and 5%, um, and we've analysed 75% cuts uh, in the aggregate measure of support in both the US and the EU. Now, the sensitive products that you hear rather a lot about, this can be uh, easily packaged up as well. It's not very important. It's just a few little exceptions made to get political agreement. The problem with that is that the exceptions can easily dominate the outcome. If you look here, what's the effect in Europe of a cut um, in, in tariffs? If you don't have any exceptions, it's a 40% reduction in the average tariff. Um, but as you allow exceptions, as, as you can see, you get to 1% exception, sensitive products, and here they're not being cut at all, then the cut has come down by half, down to 20% very small number of tariff lines can do excluded can do a huge amount of damage because tariff lines are not all equal many of them some of them have very very imp are important items um, with high tariffs that would have to come down a lot and they're the ones that are likely to be treated as sensitive and this can do damage for a long time in the US it, it's, it's what's allowed textiles and clothing to continue to have such high protection. It's very important to restrict the number tightly. That's the U.S. proposal. Defining the restriction in terms of imports is desirable because that allows for the interests of the exporter. Insisting on large cuts in tariffs is important. And here there's been huge progress relative to what we analysed. The current discussion is about 50% cuts in these tariffs rather than 15 percentage um, or rather than 15% uh, as, we, uh, as we did. Um, impose a cap on sensitive products. That's really important with some of the mega tariffs like the rice ones in Japan uh, and Korea. Um, and require expansion of what's called tariff rate quotas in all cases would be very helpful. When we look at the domestic support, you see here one of the issues of, of, of tension. Um, the commitments on aggregate measure of support, these bars indicate the average amount of subsidies countries are allowed to pay. Um, and the, the crossbars show you where they would come to after the different proposals for liberalisation. Um, and what you see is that for Europe, actually, it's very hard to bring down the actual rates of subsidy. There is so much space between the actual levels of support that, which are given by the white part of the bar and the total bar. There are all sorts of ways that these can be um, reinterpreted so that domestic support can be got rid of. And Japan did this. You, your domestic support includes the, a, a sum of your... Uh, administered price, the effect of an administered price. You can get away from an administered price without changing policies. This creates a real opportunity to evade discipline. But the United States is more, um, more likely to have to make real cuts in protection, and that's why there's more political tension uh, here. Now, there is a very important question. These subsidies are actually very, very costly, and the United States would benefit from reducing them. If we look at the different scenarios, what we see, um, developed and developing countries, uh, 
the potential benefits to developing countries are much greater than the potential benefits as a share of GDP to the developing countries. Developing countries are greater than they are to developed countries. But because of the way the negotiations have gone, the benefits to developing countries are likely to be smaller. So with the agriculture negotiations, the benefits to the industrial countries, 0.2%. It's about a third of the potential gains from full liberalisation um, but the benefits of developing countries are much less because they're making smaller cuts, the special and differential treatment. If you have sensitive products, though, the benefits of developing countries to everybody drop dramatically. The benefits of developing countries completely disappear. Agriculture and non-agriculture, if you have non-agriculture there, the benefits to everyone go up substantially. And if you didn't have these smaller cuts in developing countries, then the benefits to uh, developing countries and industrial countries would rise further. The real income rise, I think it's uh, the, the countries that benefit the most, countries like Thailand, Brazil, um, which have high rates of their own protection, and so they get the benefits of unilateral, essentially unilateral liberalisation, Japan benefits because it's got such highly distorted agriculture and bringing that down would be very, very helpful. Um, when we get down there to uh, the United States and China, interestingly, both countries now with relatively low uh, protection, both large economies, the benefits to them are very small as a share of GDP, at least the way, um, the way we measure them. So this is a Doha scenario with special and differential treatment, um, which is reducing China's benefits as well because it's making somewhat smaller cuts than it otherwise would. Important to recognise the gains we get from these conventional modelling exercises are hugely underestimated. As I said, only merchandise tariffs, no non-tariff measures, no services barriers. The aggregation, we don't capture really the huge variation in tariffs, which is extremely costly. We miss out on the productivity gains from trade reform. These are hugely important. We're getting better ways to estimate those now, and I think once we are able to do that adequately, um, we will get a much better reflection of the benefits. One thing that's really becoming clear, too, when countries liberalise, they don't just export more of the same stuff. They export lots of new and different products that helps them diversify their exports. This has really been very clear in most developing countries, especially in countries like China, where the exports, most of the export growth is in products China didn't export at all 20 years ago. Um, and there's another very important feature, which is the benefits from locking in liberalisation. We're assuming that if you put in a tariff binding at today's level of protection, it gives you no benefit. It's only when the benefits, when, when the binding is lower than the applied rate that there are benefits. But let's do a thought experiment. If you go back to 1955, Japan, the average rate of protection on rice was 46%. We would have said there was no benefit from liberalizing, from binding Japan's rice tariff at 46%. Great. Thank you. But in fact... That red line would be the outcome since then, had, had Japan bound its tariffs uh, in 1955. The actual outcome has been that hugely costly rise in protection to rice, the actual outcome over the years to 2000, hu hugely costly rise in protection to rice, hugely costly both for Japan and for the countries um, that trade with it. The role of unilateral reform. Unilateral reform can provide an important part of the gains from global trade reform. Developing countries recognise this, reduced their own tariffs by two-thirds in the last 20 years. 
They've really come to recognise the cost to their economies of the previous high rates of protection. The other thing is it's not unilateral disarmament at all. It retains WTO negotiating capital. The negotiations in the WTO are all about bound tariffs, schedules of concessions. And so lowering unilaterally provides the economic benefits of liberalisation right up front and preserves the negotiating capital for subsequent negotiations. Dan's pointed out, I just have down about one minute just to recap. I think the Doha agenda is hugely important. Reducing agricultural protections especially is difficult without pressure from trading partners. The Doha reforms cut bound tariffs and subsidies, which are often above the applied rates, which in the short run means you need large cuts to reduce protection. And it's going to be very important to have caps to reduce the highest tariffs. The scenarios show that current proposals could, re- could yield quite large gains in significant shares of the total potential gains, but the things like sensitive and special products can decimate the gains, especially if there aren't caps uh, on, those, on those products. Uh, as well as that, in recent work on poverty impacts, the special products that are being advocated in developing countries could raise poverty substantially by raising the cost of staple foods. Developing countries are going to gain, if they participate more fully, expanded south-south trade and improved efficiency. And very importantly for today's session, there's really no need to wait or to think about conserving negotiating capital. Unilateral liberalisation can give those benefits um, of potential future negotiations, many of those benefits um, right now. Thank you.